0: Hello again, and welcome to another segment of The Grassy Knoll on this February 21st. That's when we were recording this, 2005. And with us today is Craig Heidenbichner, author of Blood on the Altar, The Secret History of the World's Most Dangerous Secret Society. And welcome to The Grassy Knoll, Craig. Thank you, Keith. Um... If I were to say to people, or I would pose this question to people, who is the world's most dangerous secret society, you might get a couple of answers. That's true. But what's your answer, who are they, and why are they the most dangerous?
1: Well, my answer is pretty clear. If you read the book, it's the Ordo Templi Orientis, which means Order of Oriental Templars, and it's usually just abbreviated as the O-T-O. Most people have never heard of them and a few books have had references to the OTO over the years, but nobody's ever actually done a book-length expose and put in uh, research on their their actual documents uh, within their order to expose them. But what they are, in essence, is a Masonic academy. That's how they uh, styled themselves when they got going about a 100 years ago, an Academia Masonica, sort of a graduate school for Freemasons. And the reason they're the most dangerous secret society is partly because of their uh, behind-the-scenes role, which is obviously pretty successful since most people haven't heard of them, even though they're in 40 countries today, and also because of the fact that they have had their hands in just about every cookie jar you could imagine from government to Hollywood to uh, pop culture, uh, education, uh, the space program, and so forth. And they've, they've been very, very successful. Uh,
0: what... Drew your attention uh, to this particular group. Mainly, I said it because I remember a couple of years ago we kind of did a thumbnail on all the occult societies, or as many as we could find. And uh, I did come across the OTO and I looked over their website. And of course, there's a- Astro Argentum and all that. So, how did you focus on the OTO?
1: I focused on the OTO because as I studied Freemasonry, increasingly all the roads started pointing there in terms of advanced Freemasonry. And uh, now I have to qualify that today you can go into the OTO. They've dropped the old requirement that you had the first to be a, a, a uh, Master Mason and so forth, which was the original requirement. But they've dropped that for an important reason, and that's because the average uh, teenager and above is already initiated into the realm of the occult through pop culture so effectively that they can skip what used to be basic training and get it rapidly in the OTO itself but it was still considered advanced level Freemasonry so since all the fingers pointed in that direction from the documents and I try to work from Masonic source documents and statements of their leaders and I did I would say intelligence work but I won't go into details obviously that would compromise sources and so forth but everything started to point to the OTO so that's where I turned Uh,
0: so is it correct uh, to assume that OTO is actually beyond Freemasonry?
1: Yes, that's very correct to assume that, although I know I've had some OTO people say, well, that's not correct anymore, that, that's what it used to be, but now, now you have the phenomenon where some people start with the OTO and then go and involve themselves in uh, the regular stuffy version of Freemasonry, which is available in your, t- in your town in the Blue Lodge or the Scottish Rite, but, but it still is the step beyond freemasonry in that most people who join the masonic lodge join it for the, the propaganda reasons that are out there a benevolent order and help society and all, all of that window dressing that is used to recruit people and uh... also for family reasons or families families are involved or uh... finally one of the most important reasons they want to grease their career track because it's a, a favoritism system and a protectionist system which advances people who are involved in their various careers. But if they, if they get involved with that, they only go so far, typically. And most people, although they are uh, organs of some of the agendas of Masonry, consciously or unconsciously, just through their involvement, and then their involvement back in society, they don't get into the occult, although all Freemasonic writings at the highest levels point the finger there. So where do you get into the occult? Well, that's where you have to go the step beyond, and you have to go to a group like the OTO, which is the uh, signature group of occult masonry.
0: Um, We have heard from time to time, or read from time to time, that with Freemasonry, it can go and does go beyond 33 degrees. One, did you encounter anything uh, to that regard in your work? And two, is it true, is it false? Do the degrees take over uh, in the OTO?
1: Well, that's a very good question. And the answer, first of all, is yes, there's plenty beyond the 33rd degree. The obvious uh, immediate answer to that would be the Memphis and Misriam rights, uh, which go respectively to uh, Memphis to 97th degree and Misriam to 90th degree. And one of the most important leaders of the OTO, who I'm sure we'll be talking about, Alistair Crowley. Uh, he was at 97th and 90th degree in both rites. So you have the Scottish Rite up to 33. Memphis and Misriam go much further. But what the OTO does is it tops out at an 11th degree, which some will say, well, how, you know, how can you have something higher than 97, which is 11? Well, it's because what the OTO then does is distill down and condense the most powerful points of occult initiation. Into just a few degrees. So by the time you're at, say, the seventh degree in the OTO, you're already at, uh, you're already past the thirty-third degree in the equivalent Scottish Rite, and they they move you rapidly through uh, the levels of the occult and take you to, uh, well, the highest degree would be the eleventh. And then there's a related order that they have, the uh, Astrum Argentium, the Order of the Silver Star, and that order actually plunges a person if they want to go into it into even deeper levels of occult initiation what what i would say a uh, good description of what they're getting you to is what c.s lewis called the miserific vision mm-hmm. sort of the opposite of the vision of god mm-hmm. <laughs> but anyway they they really work you past that at a more individual level in the argentium astrum which is the aa uh, not related to alcoholics anonymous directly but has the same letters
0: all right so uh... In, in, a, in a ranking order, then AA goes even beyond the OTO.
1: It actually does, and uh, there aren't too many people you will find involved with the AA. Uh, even in the OTO, it's, it's not everybody who goes into that.
0: Uh, just as a little aside, uh, whenever I listen to um, – you're familiar with Coast to Coast, right? Oh, yes. With Art Bell and all that? Well, <laughs> whenever I would have uh, insomnia or be working a late shift and I would listen to it, uh, well, once upon a time what I heard was uh, – I guess it's a British mason who wrote a book and completely denied that there was anything beyond the third ele- uh, the third degree, you know, a complete right. reversal of the truth. Right. One other night, I heard two guys that were calling in, I guess, uh, to the show, or maybe it was the one guest, whatever, but uh, the one popped off something in Latin, the other responded in Latin, and the, uh, the host at the time, uh, whose name I forget, but he's gone now, out of Atlanta, uh, he goes, whoa, what happened there? And that's when I first heard them say, do what thou wilt, shall be the whole of the law.
1: Yes, that's the uh, OTO standard greeting. And if you ever uh, were in a coffee shop, and I don't think too many people the encounter this, but if they're in a coffee shop near a, an OTO lodge, they might hear a couple of people exchange a bizarre greeting. Hey, how you doing? Do what thou wilt. And the other will say, love is the law. Or they might say the full version, do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. And the other will say, love is the law, love under will. That's their coded greeting to each other. It comes out of a document of theirs called the Book of the Law, which we can talk about in a bit. But it's important to note that when they are speaking of love, they have something in mind entirely distant and unrelated to the average person's understanding of love. In fact, the OTO and the final Analysis is a system of tyrannical control, even though they bill themselves as very libertarian and and loosey goosey and that sort of thing.
0: Well, um, you're going to find this rich, I think. Anyway, I work for a Catholic university library, oh. and in that library, in our reference, I think, unbeknownst to the director, um, is Mackey's two-volume work, Encyclopedia <laughs> of Freemasonry. So you can you know where that's going, right? Right. And uh, but. And this is just a digression. I'm not going to go down this route. But I mean, don't you think that the, that the um, objections of uh, Catholicism toward Freemasonry and vice versa is pretty much play acting? Uh,
1: well, I'll, I'll answer that in two parts. I'd say historically, at a certain at a certain point in the uh, uh, beginning conflict between Masonry and Catholicism, there was very legitimate right. uh, objections from 1738 Clement the 12th uh, uh, denounced it and so forth. This was all This is all very real at that point. There was some pretty serious opposition. But right now, there's been a measure of convergence achieved uh, between the ecclesiastical institution uh, associated with the OTO. They have their own Catholic Church. Very few people know about it, but it's called the Gnostic Catholic Church, Mm -hmm. the Ecclesia Gnostica Catholicum, uh, EGC, that's right. And um, the EGC, or the Gnostic Catholic Church, holds a Gnostic Mass at their lodges every Sunday night at what they call nightfall, which is sort of a shifting hour of the night, but uh, based on the day time of the year and the seasons and all that sort of thing. But it's, it's when it's dark, obviously, and that's an appropriate time for them to do it. But this Gnostic Mass or Gnostic Catholic Church and so forth historically had some opposition in the late 19th century between the Roman Catholic Church. But as I show in my book, there's a chapter there where there was a cardinal who was secretary of state to Leo the Thirteenth and was in line to become pope after the death of Leo the Thirteenth. He almost made it, and there was some behind-the-scenes invoking of an ancient uh, law by a French Monsignor who was sort of a Sherlock Holmes, very sincere man, tried to track down Masonic intrigue, and he found out that this cardinal Rampolla was somehow some sort of a Mason. He didn't know about the O.T.O. probably but he had certainly had some reasons to strongly suspect this man. And they vetoed, through an ancient law, the election of Rompola, and then they got Pius X, who ironically turned out to be a very sincere opponent of Freemasonry, and went after about every version of it he could find. But he didn't get them all. And by the end of the 20th century, the ascendancy of Masonry within the Catholic Church and the uh, changes affected are sources of numerous studies. Uh, I, I relate them in a sort of encapsulized version um, at, I think it's chapter 8 or 9 or something in my book called Catholicism and the Crosshairs. But I'll just mention one, and that is just that the Thelemic um, essence of the OTO, they use the word Thelema, which means will, from the Greek, do what thou wilt. This whole notion is rife within modern Catholicism. I mean, the sort of... Uh, it doesn't matter what you do, you know. God, God, sort of this grandfather who loves you that fits in very hand and glove, uh, or hoof and hoof and glove, or whatever you want to say, yeah, right. with the notions of the O.T.O., which is sort of this loosening up. And the reason they loosen, they want to loosen up culture, a sort of uh, freewheeling, do-your-own-thing message, is not because they really believe in that. If you study the writings of the O.T.O.'s leaders, they really want, in their final vision, a tyrannical world rule in which they say that the slaves shall serve. That's a line from one of their documents. In fact, it's the title of one of their books of one of their most important leaders recently. They want to loosen everything up with the left wing so that they can counter-strike from the right and bring about a sort of police state or tyrannical world rule. And uh, they've been using, using the Catholic Church where they can. They've been using uh, you know, education, uh, the media,
0: politics, and so forth wherever they can. Uh, before we get into the nuts and bolts of the OTO and the personalities that are on the uh, floor there, yes. uh, so you believe, too, uh, that the left and right we see, the Democrats and the Republicans, uh, for more than one reason, is pretty much a game. It's just the this, this same goal with a different approach.
1: Oh, it definitely is. It definitely is. The left and the right, actually, I refer to this in my book, and I also have a CD on this, a talk called The Double Mind and Occult Philosophy, which is available from the publisher of my book independent history and research. I have a whole lecture on that, and trace that back to the Kabbalah itself, which is organized in three pillars, uh, the Kabbalah of Rabbi Loria. When the people say, well, what's the Kabbalah? I'm probably going a little bit fast here. But the Kabbalah mm-hmm. is the black magic side of Judaism, and uh, it's the mysticism and the occultism of, of, that, of that religion. But the, the Kabbalah is organized in a schema, which has a right and a left Two pillars. One's called the pillar of severity, the other is the pillar of mercy. So the pillar of severity equates to the right, the pillar of mercy to the left, and the masters of the Kabbalah, the initiated, would stand in the middle with the pillar of equilibrium, or sometimes Mm -hmm. called the pillar of mildness. And what they do is they look at the vantage point from there; they can control the game. So back when this was minted into the French National Assembly through Freemasons in 1798, this whole right-left arrangement. From there on out, we've had politics divided into a right and a left, and it's a ping-pong game where the masters of the game sit in the middle and control the show.
0: Uh, at this point, too, let's let's do some business. Uh, folks, you're listening to The Grassy Knoll Date Dade City Micro Radio. This is Viz. With me is Craig Heimbichner, author of the book we're talking about today, Blood on the Altar, The Secret History of the World's Most Dangerous Secret Society. Uh, you mentioned another title or two. Would you please give us them and where people can go to uh, get their hands on those books?
1: Oh, thank you very much. Well, my book, Blood on the Altar... You can order it direct from the publisher, or you can get it from Amazon.com also. That's the easiest way for people to probably get a hold of it. They can log on there and enter part of the title, like Blood on the Altar: the Secret History. Uh, That'll pull it up. Or if they want to go direct the publisher, the advantage there is they can also get a hold of a CD of my talk or a taped version of it, The Double Mind and Occult Philosophy. And if they log on to the publisher, Independent History and Research, at www.revisionisthistory.org They can find both right there. And that's all one word, revisionist history. And um, I'd be very delighted to uh, find that people are interested in, in either one or both.
0: You know, people who are mildly aware of secret societies might understand that there is high-degree Freemasonry. Yes. None of them have a clue. For the most part, there's an OTO. Right. Now, has Masonry gotten a greater exposure to throw anybody off the trail, or are you trying to, and if that is so, are you trying to make people aware there's something beyond it and you shouldn't let them off the hook as well?
1: Uh, Yes. I'd I'd say that Freemasonry receives a lot of attention for a couple of reasons. One is it has more of a a conservative standard uh, face which fits with the average member of society's, uh, career and lifestyle and that sort of thing. I mean, it was, it's easier to explain to somebody, I'm in the Masonic Lodge, oh, what's that? Well, that's that, that group down the street that's kind of like the Rotary, they'll say, or something like mm-hmm. that. You know, it fits in, it's standard, it's more normal. At least that's what they tell you. And so if I went around saying I'm a member of the O.T.O. and it's an occult order, some people might get their hackles up. And so so it's easier for a person to say they're a member of the, and I, of course I'm a member of neither one, I want. I don't uh, want anybody to think that Mm -hmm. but that's one reason why uh, one has received more attention it has more of a conservative face and the other reason is I think exactly what you're on to is that uh, certain orders in history work more effectively behind the scenes and they don't it's when they are are, uh, actually getting a measure of exposure something is going on which is a very interesting thing called revelation of the method Uh, Michael Hoffman the second researcher and colleague of mine Uh, went into great detail on this in one of his books, uh, which you can also get at on on that website, revisionisthistory.org, called uh, Secret Societies and Psychological Warfare, which I would not hesitate to recommend. And in that book he talks about how at this stage in the alchemical game of processing the group mind of the populace uh, and, and the level of hypnosis and trance state of the general public is deemed ready for more revelations of what's really going on. So the OTO is watching my book very carefully right now, and they're hoping and betting at their highest levels that the game works in their favor. And we, of course, are hoping and work, working toward the game working against them. But that's sort of the mutual risk involved in releasing information like this. They hope, in other words, let me clarify that a little bit, sure. When there's a when there's an exposure of a group like that, They're hoping that what happens is that the average person who reads it simply is fascinated with it, puts it away, and then goes back to blockbuster video, ESPN, sports, and just uh, goes back into hypnosis and does nothing. And if that happens, the trance state has actually been deepened for that person. So they're hoping that that's what happens. But on the other hand, we're hoping that it helps bring them out of the trance. So there's always risk involved when you release information like this.
0: Uh, Pike stated in Morals and Dogma that every every occult society sprang from the Kabbalah. That's right. Now, with the OTO, does it also, even though Crowley is credited with uh, starting it, I guess, does its roots go back to theosophy? Is there any connection with Madam B?
1: Yeah, there is a connection with Madam B or Madam Blavatsky. Um, If you want to connect with them, you have to look at some of the early founders of the OTO who are also members of theosophy. Madame Blavatsky was was one of the pioneers of occultism and and uh, initiated many people into that. She was definitely connected with Albert Pike as well. Uh, But actually, to get to the essence of where the O.T.O. originated, you have to move back through what Blavatsky was doing and look at some Kabbalistic origins. And here's where you know I don't want to boast about my research or something, but I think the chapter on the Judaic connection is is material that's simply unavailable pulled together in one source anywhere else. So I think readers might be interested in that, because I show and I document it that the initiation of the early leaders of the OTO, specifically Theodore Royce, uh, Kellner, and some of these others who were involved with its startup and the startup of movements right before it, they were actually connected with a man who came out of Poland. He was a Grand Master of the Egyptian Hermetic Brotherhood of Light in the 1870s. He went by the code name, and they all have code names. Max Theon, which means Supreme God. All oh, these guys love puffed-up titles uh-huh. too. Uh-huh. But his real name was uh, Louis Maximilian Bimstein. He was son of a rabbi in Warsaw, Poland, and he had a Hasidic in- initiation into Judaism before he left Poland. And the O.T.O. itself has admitted that there were connections to Frankist, Cabalists, and so forth, and the start-up and forerunners of their organization. But this is very little known. Anyone who reads on the OTO will be misdirected and told, oh, it's actual sources from the Sufis of Islam. Well, this is another level of the con game going on right now where we're being misdirected in a magic show to look at the hand that's moving, that is, Islam, while the hand that's not moving and is behind the scenes, that is, uh, the Zionists and Judaics, connected with the Freemasons, are really working the populace. But the Kabbalistic the, uh, roots go far, far back. Once you get there, you can trace the lineage way back. And so really what this is, is all about the Kabbalah, just like Pike said. It it all goes back there. And I quote in the start of that chapter, for those who are skeptical and would accuse me of certain biases and so forth, I quote from the Royal Arch degree of Freemasonry, for the good of Masonry generally, but the Jewish nation in particular. That's an actual quote from the ritual Mm -hmm. of the Royal Arch of Freemasonry, which is considered the completion of the Master Mason degree. So it's explicit in their own rights that they have a, an agenda and a connection there.
0: Would these uh, Jews that are in the OTO, would they necessarily be uh, Talmudic Jews?
1: Well, yes, and, yes in the sense that at the essence of the Talmud is a mindset, uh, the real Talmud, not mm-hmm. the one that's sometimes mistranslated. But if you want to get the real Talmud, you have to get something like Rabbi Adin Steinsaltz's version, which he produced about 20 volumes of that, and production was somehow halted for some strange reason. But he was actually putting back into it the translations of key passages where the name of Jesus Christ is blasphemed. It's said in there that he's boiling in hot excrement in hell and so forth, and that the best of the Gentiles should be killed. These statements you can find in Rabbi. Steinsaltz's Talmud, and he's considered the highest Talmudic scholar in the world. He was recipient of the highest honor in Israel, the Israeli Prize, among numerous other honors. But the Talmudic the Talmudic Jewry would be um, our Judaism, I should say, rather mm-hmm. is is both conveyed by those who would who would um, be at, involved with it at the Orthodox level. But I think, at a much more subtle level, somebody doesn't have to be involved with it explicitly in ceremony to imbibe the essence of its mindset. And in that sense, you, yes, you have a Talmudic mindset behind uh, involvement in the O.T.O. Even where there's no explicit connection with Orthodox practice.
0: See, the reason I ask that because it can become a bit of a complex situation. Mm-hmm. That if that if um, do you think the predominance of Masonry and, and what about O.T.O. is of uh, is Jewish? Well, uh,
1: mentally, yes. <laughs> and I'll, I'll qualify that. And I'll say I, I don't look at Judaism in terms so much as a, a racial issue. Actually, racially and genetically, you have a lot of confusion there. You have right. the Khazars and so forth mm-hmm. uh, converting in about the 8th century. They're Eastern Europeans, and the descendants of them are Ashkenazic Jews, mm-hmm. and they primarily make up what's over in Israel today, claiming to be uh, Semitic, and they're not. I mean, it's a real real irony that um, in the name of anti-Semitism, uh, or uh, persons accused, rather, of anti-Semitism, if they defend the rights of a Palestinian, let's say, a Palestinian Christian Arab whose home just got bulldozed and is truly Semitic from the the tank that was driven by a descendant of an Eastern European who converted in the 8th century. Yeah. <laughs> and if you oppose that tank, you're called an anti-Semite. You have all these weird racial... Uh, cross-connection, and so forth. But the mentality of Judaism, you have to go right back to the Gospels, and you can see it. I don't know how a person can read it and miss it, but the mentality is is clear in all of the opposition of the synagogue to Jesus Christ. And ultimately, of course, the agitation for his crucifixion comes directly from the Sanhedrin and the, uh, Luter- leaders, Luters, the leaders of well, Judaism. <laughs> it's <a thing. laughs> Freudian slip there. You got it. You got it. <laughs> But anyway, uh, the mentality is definitely there, and it's, it's what's called, uh, in Freemasonry, they, they have members, and then they have what they call a, a mason without an apron. And that is somebody who, while not being a conscious member necessarily, spreads their agenda. Well, there's a parallel to that in terms of Judaism. It's pretty much what uh, uh, the, the old useful idiot expression of Lenin, mm. that uh, somebody can do the work for them, a dupe. And uh, there, there can be a mixture of conscious and unconscious cooperation in this, but the key thing is if the work gets done. So in that sense, the whole Judaic mentality is at the bottom of the OTO. And f- increasingly, as a person uh, gets into deeper levels of the OTO, that becomes very apparent. In fact, Crowley's really who is a, 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 an important leader of the OTO, writes about it. He says the basis of their work is the holy Kabbalah. He's that clear about it.
0: I, I was... Did you want to finish off something? No, that's okay. Okay. Um, the, the reason why I wanted you uh, juxtaposed in time to some of our, our other guests is mm-hmm. because at the root of all this, what we're dealing with in one way or another, and i got to tell you, as I was reading the book, um, I started thinking about, boy, this sounds an awful lot like Aldous Huxley. I wonder if he was in the OTO. <laughs> and sure enough, you know, just as soon as I right. asked the question, I came upon it. Right. But uh, we have two brothers, Philip and Paul, who mm-hmm. have written books, about the scientific dictatorship, which is Luciferian in its roots. Yes. And um, and they hit on Crowley. Right. And then we had Chris Pinto, who's a documentary filmmaker of the Megiddo series, mm. and he had a lot on Crowley. Good. And so let's now center on this character who, uh, you know, I think a lot of people think is fun and games and just spooky stuff, but this, this guy was not fooling around, was he?
1: Not fooling around at all. He put out a certain dramatic uh, person, persona, which... Uh, is still with many people. A lot of the young people resonate with that aspect of Aleister Crowley. You know, you have the pop culture of uh, Ozzy Osbourne, yep. Mr. Crowley, that yep. song. Um, his name's frequently called Crowley, but he actually pronounced it himself Crowley, which, which is fine. It's creepy Crowley, I guess. Either something way. Something like that. But anyway, Crowley himself was a British agent. Let's get right to the bottom of it. The man worked for British Secret Service along with figures like his friend Ian Fleming, who yep. is the
0: um, man? James of course, he
1: wrote the James right. Bond series 007, which is another thing we could get into. Hmm. But I'll just briefly mention that 007 was the code name for John Dee, the court occultist of Elizabeth I. And uh, I have some material on him. Michael Hoffman has has uh, a lot of material on John Dee and his role in the birth of Freemasonry. But all of these things, y- you point back, you get to the British connection. And why is that important, British agencies, British intelligence? Because a lot of people don't realize how interconnected these con games and these Masonic con games and images are to the government. And when you penetrate back far enough, you find connections to the government. You find it today with the with the OTO with figures like Jack Parsons shipping military secrets to the Israelis, having top flight intelligence clearance. And he was a disciple of, of Aleister Crowley, who ran an important lodge in, in the United States, the most important lodge in the United States at the time. Uh, we can talk about him later. But Crowley Crowley was basically um, a mason's mason. And it's funny, because if you get on the regular Grand Lodge websites, some of them will say, well, Crowley never had official recognition from any Grand Lodge. They loved to play these games with the goyim, with the outsiders, with the Cowans as they call them. And they like to have these official denials, et cetera, et cetera, of any connection with this lodge or that lodge. Just like that person you mentioned who denied there was anything past a third degree or thirty-third third degree. Right. They love to issue all of these pretentious denials. But if you go into those lodges, you'll find the guys who are issuing those denials, many cases at at the occult lodge the next night themselves. <laughs> right, <laughs> it's it's right. a game. Uh-huh. And Crowley was not only a thirty-third degree Scottish Rite. 97th degree right of memphis 90th degree right of misrim uh... and then of course became a, a rapid. He, he rose rapidly in the ranks of the oto and became one of the most important leaders and it's funny because even today the same con games are, are debated at certain levels in the oto with lower members about who is really the successor of theodore royce and while they're debating all of this of course the control groups are are steamrolling their agenda forward they even play games against their lower members and Pike mentions that and I quote him in his book on how they exactly confess to deception within their lodges against their lower members. Crowley became famous as sort of the grandfather of Satanism. I won't call him the father of Satanism. I think Anton LaVey probably gets that that title of modern Satanism. But as sort of grandfather, uh, an inspiration to Anton LaVey and many others, you'd have to put Aleister Crowley. I mean, he's the central man of the age. And he also put out a whole literary uh, outpouring of works of poetry. Some of it's extremely poor, <laughs> but some of it was not not bad in the sense that it got some favorable reviews early on. Until he started writing things like "Hymn to Lucifer" and that sort of thing, that general public didn't go for that. But the um, he wrote fiction, he wrote nonfiction, he wrote detective stories, and he started up lodges. He started up a commune in Italy. And uh, finally, Mussolini threw him out, which is kind of kind of amusing. <laughs> but Mussolini kicked him out after, from his Abbey of Thelema, which was patterned after Rabelais' uh, constru- construct and Rabelais' work. Same same concept, sort of a freewheeling prototype of the hippie commune of the '60s. And he he uh, was a drug addict, um, uh, serial sodomizer, uh, pederast, uh, you know, bisexual, all the whole thing. So when you came to the sixties of course and that whole thing was started up again with government shadows in the background, uh, you have you have a reinvocation of Crowley and you had that on the Beatles uh, Sergeant album Pe- Sergeant Pepper's oh. Lonely Hearts Club band where they had people we like and they have a lot of people staring out of the background as a large mass group photo sort of montage actually mm-hmm. or collage. And you have Crowley's skinhead. And by the way, he's the, he's the source of the whole skinhead look. Uh, people hmm. trace that back to, they don't know where it goes. And a lot of people have traced it back to Anton LaVey, uh, father of the Church of Satan. But he actually patterned himself after Aleister Crowley, so it's kind of ironic. You know, the whole craze of the shaved heads. And many of them you'll find in sort of Christian rock bands and that sort of thing, people shaving their heads and whatnot. And it's all after Alister Crowley's original look, but they don't know that frequently. Anyway, Crowley is a hero to sort of the pop culture, but behind the scenes he was a mason's mason, an aristocrat, very wealthy, very well connected with British high society, and an agent of the British government. And that's a, a, a sort of prototype or example of exactly the con game being played today by the OTO and other related cognate groups they like to retail a version of themselves which attracts a certain segment of society uh, the youth or whatnot or the rebel or if it's the standard lodge they go for the more conservative minded person the patriot and if you if you penetrate behind it you get to the government you get to control you get to tyranny you get to long-range control projects and that 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 could bring us to a description if you want to go there of of the whole thalemic mechanism as we call it on how they manage a sort of ping pong between the left and the right.
0: Let's do that, but before you do, once again, you listen sure. to the Grassy and all on Dade City Micro Radio. With uh-huh. us is Craig Heimbichner, the author of Blood on the Altar The Secret History of the World's Most Dangerous Secret Society. Uh, that refers to what we're talking about today, the uh, OTO, the Ordo Templi Orientis. Uh, that, can be, uh, that book can be bought at uh, Amazon.com and on, uh, on Michael Hoffman's website, which is again.
1: It's www.revisionisthistory.org.
0: And you have another title for sale?
1: Uh, the Double Mind and Occult Philosophy. It's a CD of a talk about 50 okay. minutes long, which which goes deeper into the capitalistic control groups or, or mechanism behind these groups.
0: All right. If you don't mind, let's pick up where we left off.
1: Sure. I was talking about the the ping-pong game and how that's played out, and a lot of people don't understand that there's a connection between the left and the right. They frequently divide themselves up and waste a lot of energy on one side or the other of the equation. And so you open up the typical letters to the editor's section of a newspaper and you have angry people from the left wing writing to object to the right and angry people from the right wing writing in to object to the left. Neither has any clue that groups who are managing the alchemical processing of the group mind are connected and are connecting the two and the way they do that is this they like to loosen up culture at periods in history you'll see this happen time and again things get loosened up by the left wing the pillar of mercy of the kabbalah as it's called and and there will be connections back to government agents Uh, look at the drug culture and where that came from and you trace it back and you find government laboratories so you go back far enough and you'll see the shadows of the government, but the populace doesn't know that. They Mm -hmm. think they're engaged in some sort of left-wing rebellion against authority. But Of course, if that goes too far, then the stage is set for a corresponding crackdown, and then the right-wing comes in with its control. The pillar of severity kicks in. And you see that played out if you look at the writings and the documents of the OTO. It's almost a case study of that phenomenon. The, the lower members are told this is all about liberty, freedom, thelema, do your own thing, do what thou wilt, or whatever you want to call it. But if you get to the writings of the top leaders, they're saying things like, at the end we're going to take the sword to the slaves of the slave gods. And that's their word if you read the writings for Christians. They call them slaves of the slave gods. They say, "We'll take the sword to them when the hour is right. We'll strike. And they say, uh, the slaves shall serve. So, uh, in fact, they say that the average person needs to enjoy the quiet wisdom of the cattle. That's in another writing from Aleister Crowley, who was probably their most important leader. So you have these overt statements at their higher levels of tyrannical control, and yet the message, if you look at pop literature like Robert Anton Wilson's Illuminatus trilogy, sort of a front man for their, their whole milieu, and tries to put out a mythos that this is some sort of libertarian endeavor, it couldn't be anything further from the truth. Uh,
0: Also, when you talk about this this left-right thing, and I'm just looking at it also in a a political uh, view, and that is when you say they ramp it up at certain points in time, it just reminded me, as you were saying that, um, about I don't think I've seen uh, partisan politics as entrenched and as nasty as it's been in the last number of years. That's right. So much so that you can't get these people to understand that you know it's just a, a stage show, uh, right. to keep their eyes off what's really going on.
1: It's well said. Yes, indeed, and and it serves a distracting purpose, and it serves a processing purpose in terms of alchemical group group mind processing, and it serves a a destabilizing and, and uh, imbalancing purpose, and ultimately what it does is while they're ping ponging people back and forth, it's almost like if you take a piece of metal and you heat it and then you cool it f- rapidly and you heat it again and mm-hmm. you keep alternating it between extremes and temperature, eventually the metal is weakened so you can just break it. Right. And by, by uh, moving the populace back and forth and, and dividing it up, divide and conquer, or, or shifting perceptions, they, they cook the group mind in an alchemical beaker, just like, in a, like a, a renaissance alchemist like uh, Paracelsus. Uh, Theophrastus von bombastus or one of those characters, and they just they're cooking the group mind like this to mm-hmm. to make it more fragile and more amenable to control
0: uh, go ahead
1: oh just I'm just just going to say that uh, they've reached a very high degree of success with that. Mm-hmm. If you try to open the eyes of many people with these topics, it's very difficult. I was just listening to a very brilliant man a few days ago who was lecturing on the need to have people start from correct first principles and their philosophy and their approach to life and gee, there's so many errors out there in modern thought and if we could only get people to see the truth and so forth. And I was listening and agreeing with him in, in many respects, but I'm thinking you can't just immediately re educate somebody who's in a hypnotic coma. Mm-hmm. You first have to pull them out of it. And I'm hoping that I'm hoping that my book at least shocks the trance to some extent and acts like a pair of smelling salts. If it does that I'll be very, very happy.
0: Yeah, we all will be because, as you said, and, and um, did you ever hear of a gentleman by the name of Edward Bernays? Um,
1: come across that maybe in the past, but I can't connect okay. it right now.
0: Well, the thing is, I had read his books, one called Crystallizing Public Opinion, the other one called Propaganda, written in the early 20s. Okay. And here he was probably the first PR man. Mm-hmm. And he talked about, you know, maybe we'll have seven holes in the news, and every time uh, we want to introduce one, we'll pop the other one out. And right. what happens is, and as you said, this bit about the cracking cracking people when they're both heated and cooled, yeah. um, I, you know, you'll hear contradicting things, going back and forth, back and forth, and of course, TV which we all thought was going to be such a boon to our lives, actually is at the great enslaver, especially since it's gone 24-7. Right. And people sit there, and they just get inundated with data. Absolutely. And, yeah, and they just give up. They just give up, and they don't hear anything anymore. It's almost like they fail to you know, emote.
1: Well, you hit the, hit the nail on the head. In fact, what I call the television set is the televised eye of set. If you look yeah, into yeah. the occult uh, forerunners and the ideologies mm-hmm. and trace the Kabbalah back, through uh, children of Israel who picked it up from Egypt and Babylon, uh, you go way the heck back <laughs> to its start and you find the worship of the uh, dog star Sirius. Michael Hoffman has plenty of material on this as well. I want to give him some credit for mm-hmm. that. And, and this is of course set. Uh, the two stars, the binary dog star Sirius, had A and B, Sirius A and B, the binary star. and uh, they referred to as set on, which of course relates very uh, phonemically to Satan. So the televised eye of Set. Set is a key figure in the mythos of of the Kabbalah and the OTO because they interweave it appropriately with Egyptian gods and goddesses. And, uh, of course, it calls to mind those who know about the occult, the spin-off group from Anton LaVey, and that's the Temple of Set, which was done by um, Colonel uh, Colonel Michael Aquino, who has very high-level government clearance and connections still to this day. And the the, uh, Temple of Set... Uh, Aquino invoked uh, the lineage of Crowley and claimed to have inherited Crowley's mantle. Well, some people would dispute that, but there's no no doubt about it that he's in the mainstream of their ideology at a certain level. But the eye of set is a figure on the back of everybody's dollar bill. People don't know what that eye is. It's the eye of Horace, the eye of set. Mm-hmm. You can use either term. But at a certain level in the OTO, that symbol is explained in terms of sex magic, which I probably won't go into too many details on it, but it has to do with a uh, homoerotic variety of that, and I'll spare your readers and or spare the listeners the details of that. Right. But that's on the back of everybody's dollar bill mm-hmm. for a reason. It was put there by a Freemason. and it also relates to the image that was on DARPA's website or right. the defense and was pulled mm-hmm. uh, soon after it appeared, but it was there for a while and i I took a uh, I took uh, printed some pictures from it. And it showed the same eye beaming down on the planet, sort of rays of control. And, of course, it was in the recent movie uh, National Treasure. They're, they had references into that symbol and showed it and flashed it on the group mind. It's all over the place, but it's also a symbol of what's going on in everybody's living room and bedroom, where they have, most houses I think now have TVs in just about every room. You know, They have the big screen one to, to worship at, mm-hmm. and then they've got one uh, in every room to make sure that all their kids are brainwashed as well. And it's just a great mind-control mechanism to 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 do what Kenneth Grant, a prominent British leader of the OTO, said, they need to spread the energies of Satan across the planet. Well, they've been very successful in doing that, mm-hmm. and the t- TV has been a key uh, instrument in, in achieving that aim. Um,
0: I think you'll get a kick out of this, but when we're talking about Bernays, he had been over in England at the Tavistock Institute. Mm. Uh, he came over here, and, and uh, that's right. Okay. Yeah, and he influenced. Well, and what turns out to be is that his proteges, in later in his life, were William Paley, and I believe mm-hmm. Cronkite as well. But Paley, of course, goes on to spearhead the first real, I guess, n- network of importance. First one out in front, and that's CBS. And of course, what's their symbol? Yes.
1: No What's their symbol? Yeah. And you know, y- y- these symbols are so obvious to somebody who's actually studying the, the symbology of the occult and the Masonic and so forth and the Kabbalistic. But people who don't know it, it still influences them at a subliminal level. The populace is, is processed by these symbols, even if they're consciously reacting mm-hmm. negatively. If you said, hey, do you know that's an occult symbol? you got to be crazy. But at a subliminal level, that eye has its impact.
0: Sure it does. And, you know, we were talking about this with the Collins also, because they talk about semiotics. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, we live our life by symbols. Our alphabet is, you know, our symbols. And so when you have these other trappings, um, they are not innocuous whatsoever. Not at all. Now, another question about Crowley, if I would, how was he perceived, do you know, during his time? Was he considered a clown? Or, you know, was that like the persona he wanted people to to, uh, believe in? But behind the scenes, he actually was a a very dangerous individual.
1: You've got it. Exactly. He projected a persona of of notoriety. And the newspaper in England, John Bull, at one point uh, described him, dubbed him with a phrase which has become uh, famous or infamous relating to Crowley. They called him the wickedest man in the world. And he loved that. That was exactly what he wanted. He wanted to be in and out of the courtrooms, in and out of uh, public opinion. He wanted to be in the newspapers as this sort of buffoon, drug addict, womanizer, uh, controversial figure. Whereas behind the scenes, he's, he's working along lodge lines and and lines of setting up his network of lodges and, and uh, producing uh, exactly what he did produce, which is a huge uh, spread of the OTO, including getting it over here into the United States of America, which which he's very effective at doing.
0: I have one more question, Ashton, and I'd like to get to some of these bullet points that uh, you forwarded because I think that's important, the time we have left, that we get a chance to to touch upon that. But, you know, you've used the word a couple of times today, and that is alchemy or alchemical. And most educated people will think back to Merlin and such and go, that wasn't really real stuff, was it? What is your take on alchemy? Uh, Were they transmuting metals? Uh, Are we looking at a a society now that has got a technological alchemy? Uh, How do you feel about that? Oh, that's
1: a great question. Alchemy only symbolically dealt with the average person's understanding, which was trying to discover the philosopher's stone, which is a substance capable of transmuting base metals into gold and creating the elixir of life. That's a, that's the a sort of textbook understanding, if you look it up, what is alchemy. And, of course, that was uh, brought again to the forefront of consciousness, even Imprinted on the minds of children through Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, which the original title was Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. There's just blatant alchemy uh, throughout those movies. But what is alchemy? They're actually using symbols, just as masonry does. Masonry, uh, if you look at it, they'll say we're a system of morality. Well, it's actually the morality of anti-morality, if you will. But they say we're a system of morality uh, trans trans, uh, or conveyed through symbols and Symbols are everything for these people. So the Hermetic science of alchemy, and it's named after Hermes, the the uh, mythological god. It had another meaning, and that was that what they were really cooking and what they were really looking to change was mass consciousness. So while they're while they're using symbols and writing about it, it's all code language. It's 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 used to convey something else in the occult that they weren't willing to openly discuss for various reasons. Now, interestingly, the OTO. Uses they have something called the elixir of um, of life, which has to do with with uh, something you can read about in my book. May not be appropriate for the radio, but it has to do with sex magic and a, mm-hmm. mix, um, a mixture that they create and ingest and so forth. And they call that amrita. But that's not the end of the story. If you go through the, the OTO, you'll find those references, and you'll 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 be thinking that you're getting to something that's behind the symbols of alchemy. Or that's yet again just one more stepping stone where the real alchemy is the transformation of the masses through ritual processes and symbolical tests and revelations. The revelation of the method, the testing of the group mind, exactly that left-right Kabbalah game which we discussed earlier Mm -hmm. is the process of cooking the group mind in an alchemical beaker.
0: Uh, moving on, and if there's something you want to uh, table, by all means do so. Uh, oh, sure. So I don't want to you know, be remiss in, in asking you, you know, to, to speak to what you believe should be uh, spoken about in these last few minutes.
1: Well, last few minutes I'll just touch on one. A lot of people say, what's the relationship between your, your writing and Skull and Bones? Well, I, I may get more into Skull and Bones in another book or something, I'm not sure. But mm-hmm. I do get into it uh, in terms of looking at its origins going not just back to Germany, which a lot of people make the mistake to terminate some of these groups in Germany. But you have to look at the crucial Kabbalistic conceptual roots of Skull and Bones. I don't think there's any other book out there that does that. But I go into the Zohar, which is the primary Mm. book of the Kabbalah, and show that there's the key reference to the skull in which 90 million worlds are operating. Well, that's a symbol, because the skull they're talking about is the skull of Adam Kadmon, and that is what is actually worshipped in Judaism at its highest levels, and that is the the uh, androgynous perfected Judaic male, sort of the Gnostic Judaic male. And so h- inside the skull are 90 million worlds, which means that the highest level, the elites of Judaism, have control over 90 million worlds, which is, of course, a symbol for our world. So this is a conceptual level that goes right back to the Kabbalah and Judaism, and I think has been missed by every researcher so far looking at skull and bones, as well as the fact that, and some have gotten into this, skulls and bones are all over Masonic lodge symbolism. I mean, this is nothing new Mm -hmm. with this order. You can also look, like Michael Hoffman did, at the origin of skull and bones, exactly when the anti-Mason party was shutting down lodges in the United States, suddenly skull and bones springs up. Without the official name of a lodge, but it continues the work at a very elite level. So, Skull and Bones, I, I do go into its conceptual roots and and give the keys to that in my book, and I think some people might be interested in that as well.
0: All right, um, and that probably took place what around the 1830s when yeah uh, yeah okay. And was it a Aluh- Lehiu root that began in Skull and Bones? Is that correct? Uh, yes. Okay. Uh, you got me kind of intrigued. I think the, uh, if, you, if you could speak a little bit to this, uh, Kinsey and the OTO.
1: Okay, yeah, we got that movie out here by Rupert Murdoch's uh, Fox Studios, and Kinsey uh, was completely connected with Aleister Crowley. First of all, Kinsey was a pedophile. I mean, he used hundreds and hundreds of children in in uh, pederastic uh, research to come up with his his conclusions. That's been documented, but uh, and that's not in the movie, but. Also not in the movie is the fact that Kinsey made a pilgrimage to Crowley's Abbey of Thelema in Cephalus, Sicily, and was so entranced and enraptured with Crowley's work, he actually tried to get a hold of Crowley's diaries, his his so-called magical diaries, because he wanted to um, keep them as an important source document for his own research. So here you have Kinsey, the so-called liberator. And what's behind Kinsey? A fascination with the Mm -hmm. occult, a connection to the OTO and to Crowley himself, and a, a direct pilgrimage to Crowley's center of Kabbalistic depravity in in Cephalus, Sicily, Italy.
0: And to think of uh, the impact that the Kinsey Report had back in the 60s. Yes. You know, and how uh, maybe it even changed a lot of people's attitudes uh, towards uh, things like marriage and sex and, and, and whatnot.
1: And it's still invoked today right. in all of the ongoing left-wing right. side of the alchemical cooker.
0: That's Yeah, that's true. Uh, also, before we go any further... Um, Craig, can you give us some uh, ordering information? I want to get that in before we come to an end.
1: Thank you. Blood and the Altar: the Secret History of the World's Most Dangerous Secret Society. It's available on Amazon.com. It's also available from the publisher, Independent History and Research. That's Michael Hoffman II at revisionisthistory.org, www.revisionisthistory.org. You can also find a CD of mine, The Double Mind in Occult Philosophy, which some might find uh, sort of high-level study of some of this stuff.
0: Well, Blood on the Altar is excellent in every way, shape, and form. And I, oh, you. You're very welcome. It's I've, I've, It's been worth the wait to get you on, believe me. Uh, thank you. Boy, you haven't given up uh, one second here. <laughs> so, good for you. Uh, uh, another point that uh, very intriguing, OTO and the space program.
1: OTO and the space program. Uh, in bed with each other from the beginning, and specifically through Jack Parsons, John Whiteside Parsons, who is the founder of Aerojet, co-founder of uh... jet propulsion laboratory in pasadena california there's a lot on him in my book and parsons was the leader of the agape lodge uh... which is ironically sar- or sarcastically named that in pasadena california his connections go to the hollywood elites as well as the space program through that lodge and uh... he did invocations to he did a. he, he recited a ritual invocation to pan uh, the, the hoofed God, mm-hmm. uh, before the launching of test rockets and so forth. He was a key figure and called himself the Antichrist, by the way. They, these guys love to give themselves titles like that. Right. He was involved in, in ritual productions of a Homunculus, uh, which is a, a, a another Kabbalistic project. I think probably time is limited and you can read about it in my book, but if you want to read about what's happened to our space program, where's it come from, and what's the point of it, there's some keys to that in my book.
0: Or If you don't mind, I want to ask you a question um, because of what I'm getting involved with, and I'd like to hear your take on it. Sure. All right. Um, uh, a, a number of the people that are interviewees lately were dealing with these semiotics, the symbolism that we see, especially as it relates to 9-11. Right. However, we had a guest on a long time ago who uh, said uh, it's, it's Dr. Rebecca Carley. She said, if you want to see where the future is going uh, in terms of the occult, she said, uh, just watch Hollywood and the Sci-Fi Channel. She said, because in their sick Masonic minds, if they tell you they're going to do something to you, then it's okay to do it. Uh, mm-hmm. How do you feel about that?
1: Well, uh, I would explain it a little bit differently, but I, I see her point very well. and it's, I, would, I would look at it in terms of the rubric of the revelation of the method, and the way I explain that is in terms of hypnosis. In other words, if you're taking somebody down in a trance, if you're a hypnotist, you start with a light trance and so forth through suggestion. You get them under, and you want to deepen the trance. You give them a test. You give, them, you tell them something that could wake wake them up, but you take a little bit of a risk there. And if they don't wake up, they actually go deeper at that point. And at the same time, a secondary result of that is you now have a gauge to know that they're at least past that level of trance depth. So when the cryptocracy of which the OTO is the master, right, the secret rulers. If they tell you they're going to do something to you, they're also testing your trance. And if you don't come out of it as a as a populace, like uh, they they came out of it in the eighteen late eighteen twenties, eighteen thirties, with the anti Mason party, which was very successful in the United States for a while. If we don't do something like that and organize, we go deeper, and that's that's part of the function of the revelation of the method.
0: So, do you see uh, popular movies and TV shows as being um, conduits? of this kind of uh, symbolism?
1: Absolutely. I make a few references to that in my book, and, and, and specifically in terms of some of the stuff done to children. But absolutely, that's one of its primary functions.
0: Uh, have you by any chance seen that movie, uh, National Treasure? No, I'm,
1: I'm extremely busy, and I do intend to see it soon. I'm just going off of looking at its trailer and, and uh, checking out some other sources on it. But um, I plan to get to it at some point soon.
0: Uh, and not to... Um... Become preoccupied with 9/11, but there's one individual working on going back and looking at a lot of films mm-hmm. to see if there's anything there, and you know whether maybe it's coincidence, fine, but uh, there's a lot there. Uh, there's a lot there to be explained, and you know, also how long had they had this in their minds? If Daddy Bush uh, conjures New World Order for the first time in the United States on 9/11, mm-hmm. I think it was 1990 and it mm-hmm. happened again and again on 9-11. Mm-hmm. I mean, I look at this as this kind of sick joke that's being played out um, amongst all them, and, of course, the joke is on we, uh, on us. Right. And um, so, so I believe, Well, and you would agree too, wouldn't you, that numerology is also very big to these people.
1: Oh, it's enormous. And it's enormous uh, not only to these people, not only to occult orders, not only to Freemasons, but it's right back to the, the Kabbalah itself.
0: Uh, and all these religions, though, don't you find? And I know that I went to the website, or, or cult societies rather. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went to the O.T.O. website, and I, I every one of these, no matter Kabbalah, whatever, do you find that it always goes for that play on Lucifer and that light motif? Yes.
1: Yeah, they, they they love to come back to that. He's the philosopher's light bearer. That's what Lucifer basically meant in the Latin, and of course the meaning of that was. I'll go into that to some extent in the book, but the meaning that that had mm-hmm. to do um, in the Old Testament with, with an identification of tyrannical kings and the power that energizes them, uh, which is, of course, Lucifer. So both are referenced in Scripture, and there's a close connection between the two. And because the occult is seeking to impose this uh, new order of the ages that you're talking about, uh, well, has basically been very successful with it to, to this extent. We're getting, getting to some key moments coming up where it's going to be winner-take-all, probably. But because they, they love to impose this, they're constantly also invoking the energy behind it, which is, which is Lucifer.
0: There also seems to be another commonality, and that is all of these societies and religions uh, try to elevate the self yes. as that you can be a god.
1: That's right. In fact, they they explicitly say that the motto of the O.T.O. is Deus est homo, God is man. That's their motto. And that, of course, is Genesis 3.5 when the serpent says, Ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. So it all goes back right to the Garden of Eden.
0: And, uh, again, uh, we're not going to have time to get into another individual upon whom you write much, and that's James Wasserman. Yes. But um, what I did want to ask you was, um, it, it seems strange to me, that every so often, it maybe when the uh, war effort gets a little low or whatever, mm-hmm. it seems Bush and whoever come out and they speak in terms of crusades. Right. They, they use the Muslim as a whipping boy whenever it suits them and makes this thing another like holy uh, crusade.
1: Right. It's an, it's an anti-crusade, really, but they disguise it as a crusade and they, they invoke this sort of uh, imagery of the Christian versus the Muslim. Well, that imagery was on, on OTO leader James Wasserman's book, which came out just a few months before nine eleven called The Templars and the Assassins. And on the cover of that book, he has an image of Knights Templars, only their colors are reversed, uh, showing that this is sort of a false false crusade he's, he's uh, symbolizing here. And he has them coming over a wall with two towers. Well, what, what happened on 9-11? And uh, facing him on the other side of the wall is uh, two shadowy Islamic uh, terrorists, so, which could Be taken to stand for, I suppose, uh, Osama Usama. The name's been spelled both ways. So right, just a few months before 9/11, this book comes out, and then you have this 9/11 event. You have this supposed new crusade, but it's really not fought by Christians. It's fought by uh, Judeo Churchians or Judeo Christians uh, who are anti-Christians, like Bush, members of Skull and Bones, and so forth. And they're fighting. Is they're not really fighting um, to defeat Islam. They're fighting to instill and further Judaic uh, hegemony and and Zionism. That's what it's all about.
0: That is true. And on that, we're going to have to leave it. Uh, Craig, thank you so much for coming on at long last. And and you did a great job, and I thank you for being at the Grassy Knoll. You're more than welcome. It's a true pleasure. And I'm going to send some stuff along through emails and images that you might be interested in.